CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode of Money Reimagined is sponsored by PayPal. You're listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. Uh, This is a very special occasion. We are coming to you live from Coindesk's State of Crypto event in Washington, D.C. One of these rare moments where I get to actually be joined in person by my wonderful co-host, Sheila Warren. And we are absolutely honored to have in our presence uh, Commissioner Summer Mersinger from the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, who I just spent a delightful 20 minutes on stage with, and we will thought we'd just like, do something that we can bring to the wider audience through, through the podcast here, talk a little bit about, I don't know, the, the, the dysfunction that is, <laughs> so that is, that is Washington and how, how you, know, a, a, you know, a determined uh, commissioner like yourself tries to sort of move forward with things in this environment. I mean, you, we talked a little bit, let's just talk about this, about there does seem to be this vacuum right now. Legislative vacuum, obviously, you know, the House sort of in disarray uh, and therefore once more stalling on crypto legislation. Also, you've highlighted the problem of regulation by enforcement and therefore the need for uh, rulemaking from from the Commission, from the SEC and others. So what's your solution? What what can the Commission do within this kind of uh, vacuum that we're currently experiencing for specifically, obviously, with regards to crypto? regulation. It's great that we're continuing our conversation because I realized I forgot to give my disclaimer previously and so I just give it now and pretend like I did it previously. Uh, the views I express by, are my own. They do not reflect the commission or my fellow commissioners. So putting that aside, there are things we could be doing as regulators. We could be putting out uh, notice and comment rulemaking as to how we're going to hold certain uh, actors in this environment accountable where we have uh, rules that we are saying they're not uh, that that they are violating. So you know when we bring an enforcement action and we say to you know most recently to some DeFi protocols, you're violating the Commodity Exchange Act. The problem is we're not telling them how they could actually abide by the Commodity Exchange Act, and we can do that now without congressional authority. So I think there are other ways to engage stakeholders as well to better understand how they're operating and how our rules may impact their operations and so they can understand what we're looking for and how we would like them to comply with with our rules and regulations. So there are a number of things we could be doing as we wait for Congress to weigh in on how to regulate the crypto cash market um, federally. And it is really interesting because I think there is this 
misunderstanding by some in the industry that without congressional action, there's really nothing that can be done. When in fact, as you noted and you said publicly multiple times, including today, there is quite a bit that actually could be done by both commissions, by the SEC and by the CFTC. But actually what's happening because I think, most me speaking, primarily because of the Gary Gensler shared SEC yep. and the way they're approaching this, the congressional action would actually help with that regulation by enforcement approach and kind of push, the thinking is, some of this, uh, the, the more proactive way that you're talking about forward. But it's not that that isn't possible now. And so I'm curious, you know, why you think, and this is just speculation, but, you know, why do you think that that has become the kind of dominant modality of engagement, these enforcement actions versus and, and prayer and look at the kind of ordinary course of business for these commissions, which, which are being done in other spaces. Right. Why do you think that in the crypto space it's become more about going after folks as opposed to setting the rules of the road? Right. There's a combination of things. One, you know, anytime you're doing notice and comment rulemaking, that takes a lot of a lot of work, a lot of focus, and chairmen have different priorities when it comes to rulemaking and where they want to see their uh, rulemaking agenda. So, you know, it might it might be that it just doesn't come up on the priority. Uh, it might be that it's just, it's easier to do enforcement. I know that doesn't seem right, but, you know, sometimes what we see a lot are, are settlements. And so, you know, these entities are, are settling, which is an easier task to, you know, bring that. I think there is maybe a, some desire to be the stronger uh, agency and, you know, bring more enforcement, be the be the real uh, cop, you know, cop on the beat in this area. I think we've seen a little bit of that between the two agencies as well. So, you know, it, I think that's why you're seeing enforcement really kind of taking the, you know, the stage here versus going through the processes that we could use mm -hmm. to create some clarity. So it sounds a little bit as if it's a resource issue, though, right? Because obviously, if something is difficult, one way to solve that is to put more resources against it, right? And then obviously, you've got enforcement divisions and you know rulemaking yep. divisions, and they're quite different within these these agencies. So, is there like uh, some sort of solution in regards to that? Like, there needs to be some angle again that may depend on Congress. I don't right. know, but to actually put more money toward the rulemaking uh, process. Well, I think resources are only good if you have the framework and the clarity to use those resources. So I'm not even sure at this point if additional resources will help us move in that direction. In fact, you know, we have seen some of the agencies' requests, both the CFTC and the SEC's request to Congress for funding focused on more enforcement resources. So there is this play to get more resources, but not necessarily where we need them. So I just think, regardless, we've got to be able to, to sit down, engage stakeholders, come up with a framework and move forward that way. It's interesting. I mean, I, I think there's ways of people interpreting this string of court cases yep. that have really come down against the SEC for the most part, is that like, it's a litigation risk for them. That now if they were to come back and actually, I suppose, ignore the rulings, particularly the Grayscale case, 
that they would just be, you know, a, a red rag to a bull for all of these uh, right. industry lawyers who can now just like lean in heavily to what the, the precedent has been set. And so it's almost as if the courts are sort of driving something to happen. And so I suppose I'd like to sort of maybe discuss that. Like I, we talked on stage about this idea that it's, you know, both that and the idea that industry leaders could just choose to go off, offshore, in some respects, challenges the leadership of of see the SEC itself. And so is there an awareness around that? You feel as if with all of this action happening in both international activity and in the courts that is a realization that, that we've got to do something constructive and, and forward-looking like rulemaking. Yeah, absolutely. Both in the sense of, you know, when you if, if you're looking at how Congress views this, you know, with the enforcement actions and the courts, you know, dividing, you know, kind of being divided on this or, you know, making decisions that are policy decisions, you know, that's not what they are are meant to do. And, and, you know, you see some of this struggle, too, with some of the opinions that they are having to make decisions that you think normally Congress would make, that your elected public officials would make. So I, I do think that's helping to drive um, kind of the desire to get legislation. And definitely when we're seeing foreign jurisdictions come up with frameworks and start to put that in place and you hear companies say we're going to go to Europe or the UK or Singapore I think that that definitely creates some concern um, you know there are still a lot of people who don't see the that there's any legitimate use for for digital assets or DeFi, they don't understand that, that the market's there, that people are in the market, that there's an interest. And I think seeing other jurisdictions create frameworks, it helps them view this more as this is real, this is happening, and we don't want to be left behind. The U.S. has always been a leader in financial services markets. We don't want to fall behind here. Introducing PayUSD, PayPal's U.S. dollar equivalent stablecoin. Designed for digital payments and Web3 transactions, PayUSD is the only stablecoin supported by PayPal. Built on Ethereum, it's compatible with the most widely used wallets, exchanges, and dApps, and fully backed by U.S. dollar deposits and cash equivalents. Eligible U.S. PayPal customers who purchase PayPal USD are able to transfer PayPal USD between PayPal and compatible external wallets, send PayPal USD to friends in the U.S. on PayPal or Venmo without fees, shop with PayPal USD on millions of sites, wallets, and dApps, convert any of PayPal's supported cryptocurrencies to and from PayPal USD. Whether you are a crypto expert or a newcomer to the world of digital currencies, PayPal provides a secure and convenient platform for your crypto transactions. Start exploring now at paypal.com PYUSD. So there have been a number of different legislative approaches yeah. to this question of what authorities does each agency have, each commission have, etc. DCPA, we've got FIT21. What, in your view, is kind of the minimum viable product, right? The minimum viable bill that would have to get through and become law to settle this question without bells and whistles, which is kind of the bare minimum that you'd like to see get through Congress to establish this once and for all? Yeah, I think there are some minimum... Um, protections that can be put in place, some minimum consumer protections, you know, whether you're talking 
you know, the way we, the way we segregate out, you know, segregate out customer assets and certain disclosure requirements. You know, those are the bare minimums that I think need to be in a bill. But I also firmly believe that we need something that's going to direct the two agencies to sit down and create a framework for how we're going to decide jurisdiction. This isn't new. When we were on stage, we talked about the Shad Johnson Accord between the SEC and the CFTC. That was back in 1981. We, after the Dodd-Frank rule, Dodd-Frank Act went into place, there was a lot of overlap of jurisdiction in the swaps market. And the current chairman of the SEC was at that point the chairman yes. of the CFTC, Gary Gensler. Yep. And, and from people who were there, it was tortured and painful and it took a lot of work to get the two agencies to a place where they felt comfortable, but they got there. So I would really want to see something that is almost a forcing mechanism, something that says Congress is directing these two agencies to sit down and create the framework for how they're going to split up their jurisdiction. So you know instead it'd be easy, but it's clearly necessary, yes, right? Exactly. So the push that would be needed to make that happen. So then going back to this question about the courts and their engagement, we're separate and apart from anything happening in digital assets. We're seeing this general move by the SCOTUS and by some lower courts to, around major questions around the erosion of Chevron yep. and things like this to kind of say, well, we don't really need to be reliant on administrative agency experts and their interpretations. We need to go back. Either Congress has to say it or the courts have equal ability, I'm paraphrasing for yep. our listeners, equal ability to determine what was meant. How do you think about that in, in light of your role and your role at the commission? And it, it's, it's a sea change. I think I'm not sure people in our industry really understand what a big deal that is going to be because most of the rhetoric around it is in the light of like the FDA or the EPA or something else. But it's going to affect everything. And I'm curious to get your thoughts. No, it's a great question. And I think there are a lot of administrative um, law professionals out there who are you know looking at a complete upheaval of their practice because there's discussion of overturning Chevron. Uh, you know, we are actually seeing at the CFTC, we've got a couple of cases that, you know, involve whether or not um, a no action letter is is staff action versus commission action and, and what the um, regulatory process is for, for pulling a no action letter. So we are seeing a lot of checks on the administrative state by the courts right now. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Um, I think administrative agencies have started to maybe get out ahead of, of the uh, the legislative uh, branch and and try to use their statutes to create policy, and that's not the way it should work. So I, I think it is good that we're seeing some checks, but it's definitely going to create kind of, um, you know, a new approach to how we we do rulemaking and how we apply those rules once we've set them, uh, and and you know the idea that you are taking some of this uh, authority and and trying to stretch it a little bit, and we do see this in enforcement. You know, I think that's going to bring up. You know, that's not going to be as easy to do if if we continue in the direction the courts seem to be headed. So Bitcoin ETF is the big discussion at yeah. the moment. It's not necessarily something that the CFTC uh, touches on, but we did talk on stage about this vacuum around the issue of what do you do about the spot markets, right? That there's that this is like, and, and, and what do you do about the question about Ether and Ethereum? And so it feels to me as if 
Bitcoin ETFs, it, it seems, at least the market is betting, are going to get approved sometime in the next so century. The market, but um, <laughs> but uh, and, and obviously, uh, first of all, you should know what does that mean for the CFTC right. in some respect, even if it's just an indirect impact. But like, if it does draw attention to this problem, right? Bitcoin is a commodity, mm -hmm. uh, and therefore commodity futures clearly uh, is is under the CFTC's jurisdiction. But the spot market. It's not a security. What is it? Who right. regulates it? How do you see all this playing out? Yeah, I think, well, one, I don't want to say I'm skeptical on approval of these outstanding uh, applications. Please don't say. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, yes, there's a grayscale case. It's, it's kind of a question of, okay, what's the foreseen mechanism to approve for these other approvals? Again, that's at the, CF, the SEC. Not, uh, not for me to worry about, just for me to speculate on. Uh, but I think what what this means is there's you know more institutional players in these markets, and it's going to bring more volume. It's going to bring more focus to the underlying uh, cash market for for Bitcoin. And really, you know, there's nobody looking at this day to day. I don't think there are any concerns necessarily in the Bitcoin market, but there's really no. No one looking at this day to day. And if there was fraud and manipulation, then it would be our job at the CFTC to step in and, and enforce that. But nobody's looking over the day to day trading of just the cash. What happens in other cash markets for commodities? What happens in sort of like corn yeah. or, or those commodities? Who looks after those spot markets in, in, the, in the current structure? That might be a useful way to think yeah, about this. Yeah, no, and that's a great question. And I often use cattle as an cattle, example. Yeah, so, one. you know, we have cattle features. Um, we could, as an agency, if there's fraud and manipulation, and we have in the cattle markets, uh, we can go and, and bring an enforcement case. But day to day, that's not our job to go to the sale barn and make sure the sales are going as, as planned. Uh, there's USDA does that. So there is somebody who's doing that. We feel confident in their work, and we feel comfortable that the cash market works in a way that our futures markets you know, will reflect true economics of, of the market. So, you know, without lacking in, in in digital assets, you know, you just don't have that confidence and it gets difficult to decide when you're looking at a futures product, you know, is are you know, are the moves up and down are, are they is this true market fundamentals or is something else going on? It's so interesting. So just to turn that into kind of like crypto talk, right? Yeah. You basically say like the USDA in that example is kind of like the oracle that's sort of guiding you and helping you understand what's the nature of this. It's happening yeah. fine. You can kind of rely on their assessment of it. And that gives you the confidence to do what the CFTC needs to yeah. do, which is a different thing. But in the digital asset space, there isn't the USDA equivalent necessarily. It's very, very interesting yeah. to think about that and what that might mean and translate into when it comes to how an ETF might play well, out I think the time, right? would say then you're just going to come and bring an extra regulator in yeah, here. We don't that, need that at all. This the, is yeah, I wasn't going to go all the way there no, and ask you that I mean, question. It, it may but... not be, you know, this is where you may well get a lot of pushback <laughs> yeah, from folks in yeah, the industry, right? Yeah. Well, I don't think you're necessarily calling for an additional regulator. I'm curious to just see yeah, that. No, I don't think it's it. an additional regulator. I think it's just having that authority. Somebody needs to have that authority to say, we are doing, we are ensuring the minimum standards are in place. You know, it's the whole, you know, I always go to 
a segregation of customer assets. You know, just having someone make sure that if there's trading in these markets, you know, that the exchanges aren't commingling funds. And there's or... a lot of uh, former investors in FTX would say, yes, thank exactly. you. Exactly. Very much Not like that yes. Right, right. So it's it's having those, those standards in place um, to ensure a market has integrity. Well, and that gets back, I think, as it always winds around to the question of just an SRO. And yep. thinking about, do, does there need to be a FINRA-type model? I mean, that's maybe a bad example to some, but, you know. Self-regulatory organization for those yes. who don't know what the SRO <laughs> is. Yes, self-regulatory organization. So is there room for that? I, I would say yes. It's a question of timing and yep. what exactly the standard might be that was being self-regulated. Uh, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on SROs in general. No, I, I think actually SROs are a great tool. We have that at the CFTC. We, we provide core principles and they decide how they're going to implement them and enforce them. You know, to your resource question, that helps a federal agency kind of use the, the market a little bit as to police itself with us overseeing that part of it. So I think it is a good tool and one that would be really helpful in, in a lot of the digital asset space. But, you know, I think you've got to have legislation to create, you know, what what does it mean? What do you want out of that organization? You know, what, what would the role be? There's room for it. I just think we, we, we can't do it without congressional uh, legislation. But yeah, I'm a fan of, of using, you know, SROs to help police the markets because they're the closest to the trading. So, well, well, the other problem, of course, is that Bitcoin, all of these tokens are built on networks that are inherently international. Right. There's that. So, you know, you have a cattle market that is the US cattle market that then provides the cash market for yep. cattle futures. The Bitcoin spot market that you're drawing upon to price against these futures is inherently international. Yep. So, so I suppose that one question would be like, how do you foresee resolving some of these issues from an international perspective? It may not be the CFT's jurisdiction, but it is a fundamental question, I would argue. And certainly we've talked about the fact that other jurisdictions have moved forward with their own uh, regulatory advances here. What, what what role is the international component to all of this? Yeah, I would argue that's one of the reasons the CFTC is well positioned to have jurisdiction over, over the spot market here because they are global markets and that's what we regulate now. So we have ongoing conversations with international regulators. We are always working on harmonizing our rule. I mean, we we actually are working on a proposal right now to just harmonize data fields for, for stock data across the globe so that we can have a full picture of, of the swaps market. So that's something we do all the time. We are always working with global markets. Even when you are looking at, you know, wheat and corn and soybeans, they're, they're grown across the globe. Um, and so we are, we're very well um, positioned to look at global markets and decide how to best regulate and work very closely with our counterparts across the globe to make sure that, you know, we're not causing dislocations in the markets, which then just leads to, you know, all kinds of problems. You know, I've been thinking a lot recently, and I'm going to be writing about this at some point, about product market fit and just that concept as it applies to regulation and the question of what is the market. And again, to Michael's point, like it's very different. If you're a state legislator, you have a more defined market, but kind of. You have a market for you have a consumer defined consumer space, right? Yep. But you don't have a defined market in the sense that this is also interchangeable. And unlike the cattle example, which I think is such a good one, it's very hard. I think 
semiconductor manufacturing, another really good one. It's not that easy to pick up and relocate some of those facilities, some of the infrastructure, some of the physical aspects, and even some of the labor, quite frankly. Whereas in this space, and with some of the things that we deal with in digital assets, it's, it's a very flexible you know, location-based market. And so I think it's always interesting to think about how different regulators and legislators are thinking about what is that, what is the market? Is it a global market? Is it just domestic? Is it is it a state? Is it a certain set of consumers? Is it accredited investors only? Like, who are we thinking about when we're thinking about the consumers of these products? And I'm curious, it sounds like you think about this as global, yeah. but I, yeah, okay, so you think about it really as a global opportunity and a global market. And I think the rules that come down the United States are going to have a knock-on effects, definitely, yeah. and vice versa. I would say as well. But your thoughts on that? That's a good way to, you know, it's a good thing to think about because these are very, uh, it can be very transient and you can pick up and move. And I think probably makes the idea, you know, regulatory arbitrage in this case, it's it's much easier. You can go to the, the easiest place to register and operate quite easily. But I think this is something we deal with a lot uh, at the CFTC and how other jurisdictions look at that as well. You know, what does it mean to have this market uh, operating within within our borders, even though maybe it's it's based somewhere else, you know, what kind of requirements will we have, you know, when you're operating with different currencies in the markets. So we are, re- we are dealing with these types of questions all the time with our regulations and with our foreign regulators. And I think it would be a very natural conversation for us to have when you, when you start talking about uh, a lot of the digital asset markets. So, a question I didn't get to ask on stage, and I felt like I should have because of the audience that was there listening to it, but let's ask it here as we, as we wind this up. What lessons do you want the industry to take from all of this right now? Like, well, how can people in this space be constructive with the CFTC, with other agencies, and try, try to work with you to get some solution here? Because it does feel to people, or at least has felt, as if yep. there's a, just a major logjam. Yeah, no, I, you know, I think engagement is, is key. And I'm going to kind of caveat that with, if you're engaging with us, make sure you're doing the right thing. You know, get caught doing the right thing. I think, like, that's, but now our experience, right, probably the most engaged entity. There's engagement and there's engagement. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the one we heard from the most, the one who, who, you know, brought us, like, here's how you could do regulation, was doing all kinds of bad things. So... You know, when you come engage with us, talk to us, help us understand your industry and help us understand how to, you know, look at what you're doing and, and what your goal is. But make sure you're doing, you know, I'm like even the bare minimum, right? Like don't take customer assets. Like don't use it for your own purposes. Be good, people. Be, be good. good, right. Get caught doing the right thing. <laughs> Don't be evil, but also be good. I yeah. think it's like going beyond. Yeah, that, I mean, right? that's actually a pretty good place to wrap. I think like a, a universal message, but like spoken from somebody <laughs> who has a legitimate perch from which to say this. Uh, Commissioner Messenger, thank you so much, Messenger, for, for joining us here. Thank you for joining me on stage. Thank you to Sheila Warren, as always. But it's a rare occasion for us to be together. Uh, thank you for everybody for this great event we're putting on the State of Crypto uh, event in, in DC. So that's all we have time for for now for this episode of Money Reimagined. Come back again next week and please share with us your thoughts on uh, all that we're doing here. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Okay, that's all for now. Bye. You're listening to Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. 
Today's show was edited and produced by Michelle Mousseau. Our theme song is The News Tonight by Shimmer. We would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.